0: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
1: And I'm Bob Garfield. This week we are reminded that lockstep support for President Trump is not limited to Fox News and the Internet. The FCC public comment period is days away from ending on Sinclair Broadcasting's pending acquisition of Tribune Media, a deal that would expand Sinclair's reach to 72% of U.S. households and with it a vast platform for its conservative message. Even as the FCC contemplates a decision, Sinclair bosses have ratcheted up the hard-ride commentary they compel their stations to run – But it's not a new practice. In 2004, for instance, the company produced a hit piece on then-presidential candidate John Kerry, focusing on his Vietnam-era anti-war activism.
2: As I heard John Kerry speak, I could feel an inner hurt no surgeon's scalpel could remove. I felt the honor of fighting for my country decomposing, just as surely as if all the battle ribbons had been stripped from my chest, leaving
1: only torn patches where once the dignity of sacrifice been. Its 2016 election coverage fawned over Trump and ongoing White House coverage still does. Whether that's because the company's ownership is right-wing or because Sinclair struck a deal with the Trump campaign for special access or because Sinclair depends on regulatory approval for the Tribune merger is anybody's guess, although all of the above is a possible answer. Felix Gillette is a staff writer for Bloomberg and recently profiled Sinclair. Felix, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to play a little bit of a commentary that Sinclair stations very recently were obliged to run and to give you a notion of the kind of conservative content we're discussing.
2: The bottom line is this. General Kelly will bring more organization and precision to the White House. Having said that, he is not coming in to revamp the Trump presidency, but to unleash the full potential of it. Who was that?
3: Well, that was Boris Epstein, who was a TV surrogate during the 2016 campaign for candidate Trump. He was going on cable news all the time. Donald Trump has been very specific on policy, and Hillary Clinton is going to be hitting him on it incorrectly. I disagree with everything she's going to say. Then he joined the administration during the transition, served briefly in the White House, and then left the White House for a job as the chief political analyst of sinclair
1: and uh, they have another commentator named mark hyman who sounds like this not grown up enough to deal with the facts then hunker down in your room and snapchat the day away with other social justice warriors
3: college isn't a babysitting service it's time to grow up snowflake part of it is that it's not labeled as sinclair's political analysts from this conservative company in baltimore Viewers really have no idea that this is not locally produced. You know, local news has not been politicized the same way that cable news has. People, when they turn into cable news, have some sense that, okay, if I turn on Fox News, I'm getting a conservative viewpoint on the news of the day. If I turn on MSNBC, I'll get the liberal viewpoint. People don't view local news that way. And then there's the trust relationship, the one that
1: our local news stations are always talking about because there's a certain intimacy between their anchors and the local audience.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Sinclair actually at one point a couple years ago tried to centralize everything, not just national political news and analysis, but also things like sports coverage, even weather at one point they were doing from studios in Baltimore and then sending out to all these stations... You know, thousands of miles away. And viewers really did not like that. I think part of the reason that people turn on local news is they want a connection to their community. They want to see the same faces. They want to know that the person who's telling them weather is someone that's down the block at the TV station. The uh, former
1: CEO, the guy who built the company from almost nothing, David Smith, mm-hmm. once told Adweek, uh, this is a quote, Fox News Channel has demonstrated that people want a different level of truth. And if you can do it nationally, why not locally? If we're successful in creating meaningful, relevant controversy, we'll be doing a community
3: service. Right? Community service? Are they on a mission? Well, I think that David Smith very much is of the same school as Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News. You know, he would say that basically he thought the rest of the media was tilting to the left, and so Fox News balanced things out for the viewer. And I think that's pretty much the same mindset that David Smith has. He believes that when he acquires stations in big markets, Washington, D.C., as they have recently, or Seattle, and if this Tribune Media acquisition goes through, they're going to be in Los Angeles for the first time, and New York, and Chicago. He believes that when he goes into these markets, that the newsrooms are somewhat liberal, progressive, Uh, somewhat reflect the values of those markets. And so he thinks in order to provide something of a balanced viewpoint, they're going to inject all of this right-wing conservative commentary and that they don't feel any real need to hire a liberal analyst or commentator to balance that out. Now, lest we think that this is just uh, a big
1: corporation trying to impose its worldview on unsuspecting listeners— Your piece suggests that that is not their big motivation. Their motivation is making the most money they possibly can.
3: Yeah. Every time they acquire a station, David Smith goes in. He addresses all the employees, all the newsroom reporters and anchors. Part of his spiel is he says, I care about making money. That's all I care about. From now on, everybody here works for the sales team. The sales team is the most important part of the station. Don't forget it. Anyone that's worked at a Sinclair station for any amount of time always has some story about just sort of the legendary frugality of this company, how cheap they are, and how resistant David Smith is towards spending money on news gathering. Tell me about the supply cabinet, please. The supply closet, that's a classic one. A former Sinclair person was telling me the story about how they have a supply closet at their flagship station in Baltimore, WBFF, where in order to get, you know, pens, get your Post-its, replace the toilet paper, you actually have to get two managers at the supply closet at the same time, and you have to enter two keys simultaneously in order to get the door open. So it's very much like, you know, launching the nuclear codes. Now, it turns
1: out that David Smith is as good as his word because, you know, it's not just that the Sinclair News broadcasts are propaganda machines— they're also
3: kind of infomercials. The news programs are larded with advertising to a degree I haven't seen anywhere else. They have a famous segment called uh, Road Trip and Thursdays where the morning team will send out a reporter and the segment will have a sponsorship by a local car dealership, which will provide the car. They'll go visit a restaurant in the area, which will be sponsored by that restaurant. They'll go visit an attraction. We're road tripping and today we're hanging out at Bear Lake, which is probably one of Utah's best kept secrets. That's why we brought in Jared Heslip. He's with Bear Lake View Realty and uh, you guys are kind of a, a three-in-one company.
4: Right, right. We do uh, construction, we do real estate, buy At the seven, end
3: of their five, newscasts, they'll put up a blue screen of a bulk disclosure that they use and it'll say, paid promotion, buy. And this one that someone sent me, it was at the end of a half-hour evening newscast, and there were 30 companies in that half-hour that had paid for appearances. Car dealerships, liquor stores, propane gas providers. I mean, it was just kind of unbelievable to me the degree to which they've woven advertising into their news. Which means that
1: the news, or so-called news, was contaminated by commercial interests, from beginning to end, can that not eventually be detected
3: by viewers and backfire? I put a FOIA request into the FCC and looked through some of the complaints that were being registered about Sinclair, and yet yeah, viewers do take issue with this. But I think from Sinclair's perspective, they don't really care too much if it upsets viewers because you know, traditionally the model has been you try and get the most ratings and you try and do that by having the most popular anchors, by having the best stories, by having the best investigative team, whatever it is that draws in attention. But Sinclair doesn't really do that. They've really decided they don't need to win more market share. They'll just simply offer advertisers in that market something that the other stations won't provide for them. They seem to be happy to cross over the regulatory lines and then when they get caught, to pay the fines. Just last year, they paid, mm, I think, a $9.4 million fine to the FCC for various violations which were not entirely disclosed and which were not entirely public. I mean, their reputation for years and years and years, when you talk to other people in the industry, you know, they slightly bend the rules, they get caught, they pay the fine, but then they just keep going. (sighs) Uh... (laughs) Do they
1: face other obstacles in making a go of this? A public backlash, uh, advertiser boycotts, newsroom revolts, any of the above?
3: Yeah, I think there is a risk to their strategy. And I think part of the reason it's been successful over the years is because they tend to operate in small markets where there's not a lot of attention being paid to what they're doing. And I think part of the problem they're facing is that the more they enter into big media markets, the more people criticize their news-gathering techniques. You mentioned at the top when they ran a attack documentary criticizing John Kerry's military service right before the presidential election, there was a huge backlash, and there were organized boycotts of advertisers, and investors spoke up and said, you know, we really don't like Sinclair calling so much attention to themselves. The stock price plummeted, And very tellingly, Sinclair backed off. They ended up airing a watered-down version of that documentary. Uh, I don't think they're used to the level of scrutiny they are receiving now, and I don't think they're used to the level of scrutiny they're going to receive the bigger they get and the more they enter these other big media markets. Felix, thank you very much. My pleasure.
1: Felix Gillette is a staff writer for Bloomberg. His recent profile of the broadcaster is called The Sinclair Revolution Will Be Televised. It'll just have low production values. Sinclair did not respond to our request for an interview. Coming up, we'll always have Paris. Oh, no, we won't. All needless job-killing regulations will be canceled.
0: This is On The Media.
5: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue.
4: WNYC Studios.
0: This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
1: And I'm Bob Garfield. One of the key aims of the White House and the Republican-led Congress in recent months has been to roll back regulations deemed costly and detrimental to business. Nowhere has the axe come down harder than on environmental rules. You know, what we have to remember when it comes to environmental agreements and international agreements with respect to things like the Paris Agreement, is we have nothing to be
2: apologetic about as a country.
1: That was EPA chief and climate denier Scott Pruitt on the intent to pull the U.S. out of the biggest international climate agreement in decades. In some ways, the Paris pullout was, you should excuse the expression, the tip of the iceberg, because the Trump administration had already canceled the Obama environmental initiatives needed to meet Paris's goals. And the administration isn't done.
2: The head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, has launched a formal process to review and challenge mainstream climate science. The Guardian newspaper is reporting on internal emails from a division of the Agriculture Department saying the phrase climate change should be avoided and replaced by weather extremes.
6: The Environmental Protection Agency plans to cut more than 1,200 jobs. President Donald Trump's administration proposed a 31 percent
5: cut to the agency's budget.
1: Quite the contrast to Ronald Reagan's approach during his second White House run in 1984.
2: The White House recognizes that the environment is a very potentially strong election year issue. It doesn't cut both ways like an abortion issue where any stand you take can lose you as many voters as it wins. It's held strongly and dearly by a lot of people.
0: So how did we get here? How did protecting the environment go from an issue of near-universal concern to a political football? And how did the EPA, an agency created by a Republican president, become in the eyes of the GOP a job killer? you got to go back to the late 60s. When you drive along the highway, look around on either side. Just one glance and you'll see how this country's lost its pride. In 1966, dozens in New York City died from oppressive smog over a single weekend, and other cities suffered too. In 1969, the Santa Barbara oil spill released an estimated 3 million gallons of crude oil into the ocean, damaged sea life, and spoiled California beaches.
2: This is a view inside Santa Barbara Harbor, showing pleasure boats that have turned black above their water lines, where the crude oil lapped up against their hulls. The oil slick fouled nearly 50 kilometers of coastline.
0: Polluted waterways were clogged with flammable goo. The
2: Cuyahoga River in Ohio is so loaded with the waste products of petroleum distillation that it is actually in danger of catching fire.
0: In fact... Fires on Cleveland's Cuyahoga River weren't rare, but a 1969 blaze caught the country's attention. Randy Newman penned an ironic serenade.
4: Cause the Cuyahoga River go smoking to my dreams Burn on, big river Burn on
0: It was a time of noxious, visible pollution. People cared Nixon noticed.
2: The great question of the 70s is, shall we surrender to our surroundings or shall we make our peace with nature and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water?
0: Beset by protests over the Vietnam War, civil rights, and women's rights, Nixon was in a bind.
2: And uh, he saw environment as an opportunity to jump in front of this mob coming toward him and call it a parade.
0: Richard Andrews is a professor emeritus of environmental policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
2: The environment was just a dramatically popular cause. Four months into that period, into the 1970s, in April, came the first Earth Day. And it's hard for people people today to really imagine how big a celebration that. And it was a celebration, not just an angry protest. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending. A day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day. There were demonstrations, there were projects, there were things that really added up to the biggest nationwide celebration since the Celebrations at the end of World War II. And in Washington, the dire warning of civil rights leader James Farmer, at the time a Nixon administration official.
4: We all have a stake equally, because if we do not save the environment and save the earth, then whatever we do in civil rights or in a war against poverty will be of no meaning, because then we will have the equality of extinction and the brotherhood of the grave.
0: Nixon had no environmental policy when he entered office, but he grabbed one quick. Then he started doing a lot of
2: things administratively to use the president's power to reorganize government, which existed at that time, to create the EPA, to pull together these regulatory functions from the different agencies, put them into one place And put in charge of them Bill Ruckelshaus, a respected, aggressive prosecutor from Indiana, Republican, somebody who believed in public service and enforcing the laws.
4: My feeling was that what we needed to do at EPA was convince the public that we were serious about protecting their health primarily and protecting the environment. William Ruckelshaus, founding administrator of the EPA. So we filed a number of enforcement actions. We sued in one day, Cleveland, Atlanta, and Detroit, filed actions against big corporations to get them moving toward compliance, to convince them that the government was serious about carrying out the public's wishes.
0: Did you yourself have any particularly strong feelings about the environment when you got pulled into the EPA?
4: Oh, yes, I did. I had seen it already in my home state of Indiana, that absent any government interference, Not much was going to happen, no matter how bad the situation got. You couldn't rely on the individual causing the pollution to take steps themselves without being pushed by the government on a more or less common basis with their competitors.
0: So when you say you saw it happening in Indiana, what were you seeing?
4: Seeing people that were grossly polluting the water and the air, discharging raw sewage into the rivers. It was very clear that something needed to be done. Having attempted to regulate industry from the state, doing that alone in that one state was not going to do it because they would move someplace else. In fact, George Wallace, who was then the governor of Alabama, would take out ads in the Indianapolis newspaper saying, come on down to Alabama. Uh, We need the jobs. We don't care about the environment.
0: But... Because the EPA established an idea known as environmental federalism, it could set national requirements in Washington and leave it to the states to enforce them. Richard Andrews.
2: I think Bill Ruckelshaus has referred to EPA as the gorilla in the closet, <laughs> that the states could then say, you know, we have to do this, all the other states have to do it, EPA is making us do it, and if we don't do it, then the EPA is the backup to do it itself, and surely. Mr. CEO of one of our in-state corporations, you wouldn't want the EPA to be doing this directly to you.
0: And in fact, the EPA had 10 regional offices, still has, half of the EPA staff is out in these offices?
2: Yes, partly overseeing, but really also partly sort of backing up and assisting the states. They've built enormous capacity at the state level in many states, although their philosophies under different governors vary about how tough they want to be.
0: Back to the Nixon era. A bit of a tangent, but during the fallout from Watergate in 1973, William Ruckel's house was shuffled around, first as acting director of the FBI and then deputy attorney general.
4: I was only there as deputy for about 23 days before we got involved in a squabble with the White House and the president over Archibald Cox.
0: The independent
4: prosecutor appointed by the Justice
0: Department to investigate Watergate. Nixon wanted Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Cox. Richardson quit in protest. Then the president ordered Ruckelshaus to fire Cox. Richardson's deputy, William Ruckelshaus, has been fired. Ruckelshaus refused in a moment of constitutional
2: drama to obey a presidential order to fire the special Watergate prosecutor.
0: The events became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. Afterward, Ruckelshaus took a break from government. In the meantime, the 70s saw the rise of deregulation from airlines to stock markets to telephone companies, and not just under Republicans, Jimmy Carter, too. But Richard Andrews said it was Reagan who expanded that philosophy to environmental protections.
2: Rather than trying to reform or tweak the environmental regulations that had come into play in the 70s, he tried to just reverse them, and it didn't go
0: well. Reagan nominated Anne Gorsuch Burford as the EPA administrator. Incidentally, her son Neil is Trump's Supreme Court nominee. Anne Gorsuch and most of Reagan's other EPA appointees had no experience in environmental regulation, and so the EPA was blasted for supporting polluters over people and mishandling the Superfund program created to clean up toxic waste. Critics charge Superfund hasn't been used enough. Because of political delays, or because EPA has been too easy on the industries which polluted.
2: Political delays? Example, the Stringfellow Acid Pits, where not a penny of the
0: federal super fund has been spent yet. More than 20 EPA officials resigned or were fired from the agency. Public outcry led to congressional investigations. And the head of the Superfund account went to prison.
4: Well, the public was riled up. They were mad. They were angry. They believed that this agency created to protect the environment and their health was being undercut. So they demanded change. Once again, in the
0: midst of public outcry, Ruckelshaus was asked to run the EPA by a president backed into a corner. When he returned to Washington, he was free to repair the tattered agency any way he saw fit.
4: It was the one promise I asked the president to make, and that was to let me find the people who could take the place of those who were uh, being replaced. The president looked at me in, in the Oval Office and said, Go ahead. Obviously, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these were people that had been there before that I'd kept in touch with, and we straightened it out in a, in a big hurry.
0: You mean you didn't want to drain the swamp of all those uh, experienced bureaucrats?
4: We didn't think of it as a swamp. It was a wetland, which is <laughs> to be preserved.
0: You wrote in the New York Times this week, that as you were awaiting Senate confirmation for becoming the EPA chief the second time, you had conversations with the execs at chemical companies that stunned you. They were worried about the EPA having been gutted.
4: Yes, they really were. This group of chemical manufacturers, which were heavily regulated by EPA, asked to see me, and I assumed they were going to complain about overregulation,
0: Because that's what happened the first time you were at the EPA.
4: Yeah, everybody was complaining then. They came in and said just the opposite, that they had no credibility with the public, that the agency charged with regulating their conduct had essentially been eliminated as far as the public was concerned, and that I needed to get in there and start regulating and start showing that the government was serious about protecting public health and the environment.
0: What were they afraid was going to happen if the public couldn't trust them or the EPA? Uh,
4: Then the public will turn on them and take away their license to operate. Uh, They were finding that they had so little support from the public, even from their own employees, that the government needed to step in and say, we're going to protect your health, we're going to keep you safe. They requested that. You need an agency there to ensure that the rules are followed, that the rules are clear and, and fair and protect the public. Clean and fair rules,
0: but not too many. In the mid-'80s, a Democratic Congress overcorrected for Reagan's cuts by writing environmental laws that directed the EPA to issue a certain number of new requirements a year. And this, according to Richard Andrews, is when the EPA's reputation began to sour.
2: We'd already regulated the big companies, and so now we were doing things like regulating drinking water and underground storage tanks and things that hit much more heavily on uh, small businesses and local governments.
0: But still, this issue remained bipartisan
2: for a time. The first President Bush made maybe the last serious effort to really define himself as a Republican environmentalist president. I don't have to tell those of you who are hunters and fishermen how important the wetlands are as a habitat for fish and ducks and geese and other waterfowl, but they also help control flooding. In 1990, he spearheaded the Clean Air Act amendments that gave us cap-and-trade for sulfur and nitrogen, really one of the most effective innovations in environmental policy we've seen since the 1970s. But in 1992, he was then beaten by Clinton running with Al Gore, who was clearly identified as an environmentalist. Saving the Earth's environment must and will become the central organizing principle of the post-Cold War world. Over these several events, the Republican Party generally decided that no matter how much they tried to burnish their environmental credentials. There would always be some Democratic opponent who would push for more government action than they were comfortable with as a party. And so they began to dig in deeper with the anti-environment constituencies and so forth, while the Democrats in turn said, okay, this is our winning issue, and the environmental groups can be our ground-level support troops, sort of like teachers and so My own assessment is, I think it's unfortunate that environment has sort of been captured by this increasingly polarized partisan dynamic as a big government issue.
1: My first day in office, I'm also going to order a review of every single regulation issued over the last 10 years. All needless
4: job-killing regulations will be canceled. Do you have a sense of deja vu? Well, it's hard not to. People at EPA are afraid. They're afraid they're going to lose their jobs, that they're going to lose their ability to function as they believe they should. And I would guess that their fear is justified. What do you think the
0: EPA's number one priority should be now?
4: Well, I think they should do their job. I think they should do a better job of communicating with the public as to what they're doing and why they're relevant to their lives. The EPA doesn't have a whole lot of constituencies. Uh, There's not people who say my my favorite agency in the government is the Environmental Protection Agency. Quite the contrary. I also think that there are some legitimate criticisms of EPA. Sometimes regulators and inspectors get arrogant. Uh, They push people around unnecessarily. They need to be firm and they need to be fair. But at the same time, they need to recognize that A lot of the people they're dealing with are their customers. They've got to be better at convincing people that they really are on their side. I think also EPA can make some better choices in terms of what they really focus on. It would be a tragedy for this country to drop out of paying attention and taking the leadership role in dealing with climate change. If EPA were to go away, the ability to deal with climate change by our government would be severely compromised.
0: Why do you think, then, that so many congressmen and senators in the GOP are climate change deniers or agnostics?
4: Well, it's a number of factors. I think part of it is religious. In the sense that the climate of the world is pretty much predicted by uh, events that will occur in the future by the Bible,
0: but weren't they just as religious under uh, Nixon and Reagan?
4: Yes, but they weren't as politically organized. Pollution was smell, touch, and feel kind of stuff you could see mm. it, so you didn't need to be told it was it was either coming as part of some biblical revelation. It was it was there. Uh, the climate change is a gradual kind of problem that religiously you can explain it in terms of something that's going to happen anyway. So why worry about it? Hmm. And uh, there are concerted efforts on the part of the fossil fuel industry, scientists that they hire who will contest the overwhelming number of scientists who say climate change is real and it's coming at an accelerated rate and that we need to do something about controlling carbon and other gases that cause climate change. If we don't do that, then we have to adapt to it, and that's a lot more expensive than trying to mitigate it. There was
0: a Pew poll last year that found that most Americans, 74%, say that the country should do whatever it takes to protect the environment. But in terms of priorities, the environment ranks below issues like the economy and terrorism. It's almost as if the public is saying... Hey, could you just take care of this, but, you know, don't make a big fuss about it?
4: That's about right. They say, get to it, but it's not our first priority. In fact, when the economy's in trouble, it usually drops down to about the last priority. They think we can get at that when it's, everything else is in good shape. So where does this leave the EPA? Unless the public rises up and tells their congressman, we won't stand for this then it will continue to deteriorate in terms of its effectiveness. I think people have to make their voices heard as they are supposed to in a democracy. If they do it, they can stop this deterioration of regulation necessary to protect their health. But if they don't, uh, then it'll continue and we'll be in real trouble. William Ruckelshaus,
0: founding director and then reconstructor of the EPA. Under Presidents Nixon and Reagan.
1: Coming up, the environmental disasters you see, the ones you don't, and the ones that are just too hard to describe.
0: This is On the Media.
5: On the Media is brought to you by ZBiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. ZBiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. ZBiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash OTM to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com OTM, and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off.
1: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently
0: This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
1: And I'm Bob Garfield.
0: Journalistic ethics have long
1: tabooed rushing to judgment about the cause of this tornado or that flash flood. Politicians, too, have flinched from drawing a straight line from natural disasters to climate change. Here's a press conference with President Obama in 2012.
7: Tomorrow you're going up to New York City where you're going to see people who are still suffering the effects of Hurricane Sandy, which many people say is further evidence of how a warming globe is changing our weather. What specifically do you plan to do in a second term to tackle the issue of climate change?
1: As you know, Mark, we can't attribute any particular weather event to climate change. But has that abundance of caution mutated into a sort of incautious denialism? Because when President Obama made that claim, the science connecting the weather and the climate called extreme weather attribution, already had been around for almost a decade. Certainly in the ensuing four years, that connection has gotten a lot clearer.
6: The National Academy of Sciences released a consensus statement on the state of extreme event attribution, and and they made it very clear that it is now possible to attribute individual events to climate change.
1: Heidi Cullen is the chief scientist at Climate Central, an organization devoted to communicating the science of climate change to the public. For years, she worked at the Weather Channel. And whenever something nasty happened, people would ask her if the cause was
6: climate change. And she hemmed and hawed. Yes, I did have to hedge because in the early days, this is 2003, 2004, the answer was, well, you can't attribute any individual event to climate change. And it felt pretty bad. Like, I really wanted to be far more helpful than I was able to be. And I'll never forget when the very first extreme event attribution analysis came out, looking at the European heat wave of 2003. And I finally had something specific and solid to say about an individual event that impacted— I mean, it cost the lives of over 30,000 people in Europe. And we found a very strong climate change fingerprint in that event.
1: Just to be clear, no individual storm can exactly be traced to climate change. There's no smoking
6: gun. Just like with cigarette smoking and lung cancer, and I can't say that that cigarette is what caused someone's lung cancer. It's the same thing with climate change and extreme weather. But what we can say is that climate change increased the likelihood or increased the intensity of a specific weather event. You can make a definitive quantitative statement about what role climate change may or may not have played in an individual weather event.
1: What's the methodology?
6: It's fairly straightforward. A lot of the techniques actually come from epidemiology. So to go back to the cigarette smoking and lung cancer analysis, you look at what probability can be explained by a given causal factor. And so with extreme event attribution, what climate scientists do is look at, is there a trend, for example? Are there increasing heat waves in this particular area? And then we use climate models to essentially recreate that event. We create a model that is the world as we know it today, and then we create what we call a counterfactual the world as it would have been without us and all of our global warming pollution. And then we look at the statistics and we say, okay, how likely was an event like this epic flood that hit Louisiana, how likely was that event in the world we live in now with all of the additional greenhouse gases we've put into it versus that event in the past in a completely natural world, if you will. And that's what allows us to do what we call an attribution to climate change or carbon pollution, essentially.
1: What other recent weather events could you take to court with your comparative models and get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt?
6: Heat waves, cold waves, heavy rainfall events, floods, and droughts. And then on the far end, I would say that there's still a lot of work to be done trying to really untangle, say, tornadoes. That's really at the far end of our capabilities. And I'd say that something like hurricane attribution, that's really at the cutting edge right now, and there's some really good groups working on it.
1: We're talking about the epidemiology of weather. Give me a notion of how good a case you can make. What is the scale of risk that we can now measure?
6: Well, just as one example that is just really profound, an analysis was done by some colleagues at the University of Melbourne looking at the recent bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. And what they found was that climate change made. That event, 175 times more likely. You're basically moving into territory where that event wouldn't have happened in the absence of global warming. That's a pretty profound statement.
1: So if we're back in court, you can get the verdict from the jury you're looking for.
6: The evidentiary standards of lawyers are beyond a reasonable doubt. So yeah, I think 175 times more likely is the winner.
1: It makes me wonder whether the language that we tend to associate with extreme weather, for example, the term natural disaster, is that the right term anymore?
6: I think that is the beginning of a really long and important conversation. For the longest time, we have viewed our environment and the incredible weather that it produces as an act of God, if you will. And I think that For myself and the colleagues that I work with on rapid attribution analyses, it's to really help provide that context to say, no, if your home got flooded the third time in a row, it's not just because you're unlucky. It's because the system has changed, the odds have increased, and we need to have a conversation about how to deal with the changing nature of these risks.
1: Now, weather modeling is not new. How is it that it's taken so long for Climate scientists to make this case?
6: For a very long time, the scientific community was focused on the global scale. It was the fact that our planet has warmed up 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit over the past century, over the entire globe. And I think as our computer models got better, as we were able to run them more quickly, we were then able to narrow the time and the space with which we looked at events. It wasn't just temperature or rainfall over the entire earth. It was this specific event in this specific place.
1: The premise of this conversation is that the media have been, as a group, reluctant to make connections in reporting about severe weather with climate change. Are we guilty of malpractice? Should we have been on to extreme weather attribution long before this?
6: I often think about the 2008 economic meltdown and the fact that leading up to that crisis, there was a ton of reporting where we talked about the ups and downs of the stock market and how the housing market was booming, and that broader economic context was missing. And so when the crash actually happened, there's a lot of people who asked, God, why didn't we know about this sooner? And I I feel like maybe that's the moment we're at right now. But I do think that there is a true opportunity and, and in fact, a a true responsibility for the media to connect the dots better, because 20 years from now, when things really begin to melt down, the question is going to be, why didn't anyone tell me about this sooner? This science of extreme event attribution is a way to help people finally see what climate change is doing to them and their families and their communities right now.
1: Heidi, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Heidi Cullen is the chief scientist at Climate Central. In some ways, our collective anxiety about humanity's effect on the planet literally floats in a giant mass. You've likely heard about it. You can even picture it.
5: Estimated to be twice the size of Texas, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch stretches from the coast of California all the way to Japan. In some places, the man-made debris is 90 feet deep. The Great Pacific
1: Garbage Patch, a solid floating landfill of detergent bottles, shopping bags, car tires, volleyballs, cathode ray tubes, and baby toys. Or not. Dan Engber is a columnist for Slate, where he looked below the surface of the garbage patch and found something far more amorphous floating in the sea.
7: A yachting captain in 1997 came across what he described as a plastic soup. He was sailing through a part of the Pacific Ocean where swirling ocean currents kind of gather driftwood and seaweed. And day after day, as he described, that he was seeing garbage in the ocean. And then it wasn't until 2006 that it really started to get a lot of press. And then for maybe four years after that, it was everywhere. Still, I think that image of it as floating trash persists.
0: Some claim the garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean is the size
7: of Texas. It is a massive floating garbage patch that's double the size of Texas,
4: and it's only a garbage bigger. patch, which is just a huge wasteland of plastic and debris, five times the size of Texas
7: than it was the continental United States. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has a website devoted to the size of the garbage patch, and they point out that you can't observe it in satellite photos. If you're sailing through it, you wouldn't even see it. I mean, it's defined as a part of the ocean where there is a higher-than-normal concentration of tiny microscopic plastic pollution. And it's floating around, and the edges are are shifting in the waves. So no one knows how big it is. It doesn't really make much sense to talk about it as continent-sized or twice the size of Texas. It's degraded plastic? Yeah, so plastic pollution will break down into smaller and smaller pieces. And in fact, there's reason to think that's more of a concern than tires and cathode ray tubes, because these little bits can make their way into the food chain. So, I mean, there there might be more tires floating on average in this part of the ocean than in other parts of the ocean. But, you know, you're not going to run aground on the trash island. And I think it's something where there is a scientifically understood phenomenon that happens to be very different in its real appearance than how almost everyone understands it. Even the intrepid sailor who got the world's attention to
1: his vivid description back in the 90s began a book... By walking back his own description, in 2008, he went on NPR talking about it.
7: (laughs) And if it's calm, it sort of looks like a giant salt shaker has sprinkled bits of plastic onto the surface of the ocean. And uh, in
1: 2009, when Vice did a piece that they called Toxic Garbage Island, they had to have language in there explaining that it wasn't really coverage. <laughs> I came out here expecting to
7: see, you know, like, a trash dump. You just see water a thousand times worse than a Coke bottle, because what it is is it, it's every part of a Coke bottle busted down into a little digestible morsel. Yeah, a lot of this coverage includes in the storytelling the discovery that it's not really an island. This debunking has been done so many times now, and it seems to have no effect. The activists on this issue have been talking about how to reframe the discussion of the garbage patch so that it's more truthful. Well, should we call it a plastic soup? Maybe we should call it a micro-pollution or plastic smog. But none of these things are as easy to understand and worry about. We see the same problem when we're talking about invisible global warming. We cast about for specific things we can think about, polar bears or measurements of ice caps. The real issues are much harder to quantify how much damage is it, how does it compare to last year, how will it compare to next year. I mean, it makes me really uncomfortable to think that somehow I and lots of other people got the wrong idea about this. And I was looking at some of those original stories about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. How did they get this so wrong? And the interesting thing is many of the stories got it right. But the art that went with the stories, photos of trash-filled lagoons in the Philippines or whatever— just to illustrate the idea of garbage in the water. You could read that story carefully, but a month later, when you think back on it, you remember the image that you saw. So I think this is a case where somehow the art might have been more of the problem than the text.
1: All right, so then your piece in Slate takes an unexpected turn when you conclude that it's actually a benefit to us all that people are
7: making this mistake. Why is it a benefit Well, I actually have mixed feelings about it. I think it gets people to care about ocean pollution. Otherwise, if we just kind of knew that all the plastic we throw away breaks down and is distributed uniformly across all the oceans of the planet, it's hard to care that much. But if you can picture every time I toss my soda bottle in the garbage, it's going to end up adding to this volcano of garbage erupting from the Pacific Ocean. That's something you can think about and worry about. It's so resonant because we all feel like we've contributed to the garbage island. Yeah, I think that's the power of the image, that, you know, everything bad you've ever done to the planet, you toss something in the ocean and you think it disappears into the infinite depths. No, it's all being squeezed together into one spot just to rub it in your face. And spurs action even even from the Congress. There's a Mike federal microbead pollution act that was passed last year this gets right at the problem of this microscopic pollution that's so hard to think about. But the activism that led to it comes out of this Great Pacific garbage patch moment that took hold 2007-2008.
1: You compare it to the ozone hole. It's not really a vacuum of ozone over the Antarctic as it's often envisioned.
7: Yeah, the ozone story is very similar. This is something environmentalists understood was a problem in the 1970s. You know, we're releasing these polluting gases into the atmosphere. They're probably thinning the ozone layer. That's going to be bad for everyone. But it was only in 1985 when it was discovered that the effects of all those polluting gases were concentrated in one spot. So there was a seasonal thinning of the ozone layer in one place. And they came up with this great name for it. They called it the ozone hole.
2: They say increased ultraviolet radiation through a hole in the ozone could raise temperatures, damage farm crops, and cause a lot more sunburn.
7: Like this wound had been ripped open in the air surrounding the planet, and that's what led people to really start to worry about it and care about it. Isn't this just kind of a smoking gun for those who would
1: discredit climate worries as alarmist?
7: Sure, yeah. You can find websites written by climate change deniers who point to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch as another fraud. I think this is the danger of such things, you know, environmentalists cast about for those images that sort of go viral, that get everyone worked up. You know, it helps in the moment, but I don't know if it works in the long game. Hmm. Dan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Dan Engber is a columnist for Slate. He
1: wrote, There is no island of trash in the Pacific. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Loewinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Isabella Kokami, and our show was edited. A little by Brooke, a little by Katya Rogers. You know, it takes a village. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson, Our engineers this week were Sam
0: Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
5: On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.